Welcome to Celebrating Act Two. Celebrating Act Two is the user manual for the second half of your life. Welcome back. Uh, we're here again today with our special guest, John Mariani, and my partner, John Coleman. Hey, John, good to see you again. Good morning. Good to be back with you. Uh, John, last time we talked to you, we uh, discussed your serialized novel, Love and Pizza, uh, that you are uh, exposing or um, publishing in your newsletter every week, by chapter by chapter. And um, I, I noticed that what you've done because of the COVID-19 and the, the, nobody can eat out anymore, at least for a while yet, um, you replaced what you titled your New York Corner, your, your review of New York restaurants, uh, with the novel. Um, Which takes place in New York and there's a lot of food. Sure, work. and it's about food and whatever. You know, it's a nice uh, love story. But I loved, by the way, I loved the New York Corner, the New York City Corner. And it always struck me uh, reading that, being from New York, as all three of us are, um, it always struck me that I had taken for granted what a great uh, a great food city New York is. I, I, you know, I'm growing up, I knew of all these great restaurants, and my dad would come back from meetings at Pen and Pencil, things like that. Uh, yeah. um, all the great steakhouses. Oh, when yeah. I, yeah. yeah, when I first went to work in in a television business in New York City. Um, we would uh, we would run out for lunch to a German place uh, downtown, or even go around the corner to one of those Irish Blarney Stone places right. at a at a lunch counter. Um, right. uh, wonderful, wonderful city. And what struck me about your New York corner is that you captured not only all the feeling of restaurants, uh, the the variety of uh, restaurants in New York City, but the world-class quality of them as well. Uh, and I'd never thought of New York City as a, I don't know, Paris for restaurants, Berlin for restaurants. I always just thought of New York as a big place mm -hmm. with lots of them. Well, it, it, it is and it is, and it has been for <laughs> quite some time. But uh, I mean, your point is well taken. When people think of great restaurant cities, they think of Paris, and that's about it. They don't really think of Berlin much because Berlin, they had two world wars that <laughs> didn't do go too well for the restaurant industry. But um, yeah, I mean, Paris has always held this mystique of having the best uh, restaurants, and it is unquestionably true that Paris has always had the best French restaurants, as you might imagine. Uh, just as Rome is a great eating city uh, with great Italian restaurants and uh, Florence. Is for well, the fact of the matter is there are more Italian restaurants in New York than there are in Florence and perhaps Rome combined. Uh, as for Paris, we can get that to that in a moment. But um, the thing that distinguishes New York from everywhere else is because we have 250 years more, if you go back to um, uh, the original Dutch settlers, um, we have a gastronomic history that was fed not only by the new settlers, which came from uh, uh, the Netherlands, which came from England, which came from um, down south, of course, the Spanish uh, and the uh, Portuguese and so forth. Um, and then you had the, the Native American uh, food culture, which had a big influence. And then the adoption of all of these people and those to follow, which were, we'll talk about the immigrant waves in a minute, 
um, in the 19th century and all that followed, um, picked up an adapted American food, which was much more readily available in this growing city of New York, which, let's say, New York City up until after the Civil War didn't even exist much above 14th Street. And um, the reason they call that famous apartment building, the Dakota, which is on the Upper West Side, um, is because they said, who would live up there? You might as well live in the Dakotas. And so they call it the Dakota. Um, but yeah, New York was very, very small. Wall Street was called Wall Street to keep the Indians out. And it didn't extend much beyond that. And then a remarkable, one remarkable thing happened. A former Swiss sea captain. Don't you love sea captains? Well, yeah. Larson yeah. and guys like that. Um, a former, right. He retired from his seafaring days. And he opened up a, a little eatery down in the Wall Street area, which was copied from the French models of the restaurants and bistros of, um, of Paris, which themselves had only opened after the Napoleonic Wars. So we're talking in uh, restaurants in, as we know them in Paris, are really post-1812. Well, now bump up to the 1830s, just 10 years later, and this guy whose name was uh, Giovanni Del Monaco, which he changed to John Del Monaco, opened a place for the Wall Street merchants who were used to eating outside under the elm trees, um, the beech trees, and um, or go, going to a tavern. We always had taverns, but taverns are a place like, you know, you, eat whatever was put in front of you and you drank whatever was put in front of you. You had no choice. You had no menu. You just ate this basic slop. Well, John Delmonico opened a place which he called Delmonico's, and he had a menu. And people would peek in and say, like, what is this? And he had French wines that he had imported, as well as New York wines, which, was then, which were then being produced. And he had a lady cashier. This was like a phenomenon, to have a woman up front taking your money. Remarkable. He later installed a revolving door, the first one in America. So Delmonico's took off very, very quickly. And within just a couple of years, um, it was being copied. And he opened, considered, as, as New York moved uptown from Wall Street, so did the various Delmonico's. He got as high, uh, he went up to Fifth Avenue and where Madison Square Garden uh, used to be. Um, and they got more and more opulent. And the second one, which is on Beaver Street in the Wall Street area, is still extant, still has the same portals outside. And then it's a grandiose and wonderful restaurant, closed at the moment. And Delmonico's was the first in America. Uh, the second was in New Orleans, which is still operating also, Antoine's, which opened, I think, about 1839, 1840, something like that. And that was a very French restaurant because New Orleans was very, very French. So, but to get back to New York, um, after that, after the Civil War, that's when the great influxes of the immigrants came uh, from Europe, largely, and to a certain extent, uh, the Chinese came. Um, the Chinese mainly settled in the West. They built the Chinatowns, but they built a Chinatown in um, in New York. Uh, I've been watching this great, really wonderful PBS series on the Asians and how much they suffered as as, as uh, did any other. Uh, Asians, uh, any other cultures uh, who, who came to the United States and were um, sinned upon greatly, let's say. Well, Chinatown 
and all eateries, grocery stores, wine shops, these were very easy things for immigrants to open and to get into. So when the Jews came, they opened delicatessens, serving an Eastern European style of Jewish food, some of which did not exist back in the old country. But that's really like an Ashkenazi Jewish kind of cuisine, Polish, Romanian. Okay, <clears throat> The Germans who came from certain sections with the sausage, the verse, and Bavaria, the Germans in New York were that Bavarian Gemütlichkeit, Umpapa bands, is this Nasta? You know, they had them bring the map down. Is this Nasta? And they were up in Yorkville, which is 86th Street and 3rd Avenue and Lexington Avenue. And there was a whole slew of German restaurants up there, a lot of fun. Great German beer and Pilsner and so forth. The Italians <clears throat> were all over. They had a little Italy. Certainly they opened there. And they had pockets, big pockets in the Bronx. We were talking about that in, in, in the Fordham section. And in Brooklyn and, um, and all over the city. Um, the pizzeria which comes from Naples, but was unknown. Pizza was unknown in all of Italy outside of Naples. But the idea came to America with the immigrants. And in 1912, they opened the first pizzeria in America, which is still going strong today. And um, it, uh, it's called G. Lombardi's. They still have the, the original stove. And um, so the Italians did that. <clears throat> the Greeks came and for some reason got into the diner business, which they hadn't been back in Greece, but they also opened uh, Greek cafes, as did the Turks, as did the Syrians, as did the Albanians, and so forth. The Irish, <clears throat> as you made note about uh, going to the Blarney Stone, the Irish did not have a highly developed, well, none of them had highly developed cuisines. The, the Italians, for instance, the poor Italians, uh, never went to a restaurant back in the old country, uh, neither did the Germans. I knew what a restaurant was. <clears throat> the Irish had been starving, and the reason that they came over was the potato famine. So they really had no restaurant background whatsoever. No trattorias, no rathskellers. Um, so they opened these Irish bars, and you had to have some food. And out of that came things like corned beef and cabbage, which is to this day unknown in Ireland. Um, so a lot of the dishes that we have uh, on our plates in New York are completely unknown. Pastrami is not is not a big deal, um, and certainly not in Israel. Uh, you know, the bagel um, really had a success here rather than Jewish communities back in the old country. So everybody brought their own style. The Chinese certainly first, mostly Cantonese, so it's mostly Cantonese food. But there's no egg foo young. Um, there's no chow mein in China. Um, and then you had Rocky Aoki, who opens up uh, Benihana, which is that the, the teppanyaki type of uh, restaurant with steak, which didn't exist in in, uh, in Japan either. And when they opened one over there, they called it Benihana of New York rather than Benihana of Tokyo. So all of these immigrant groups made New York very, very, very rich in terms of uh, restaurants, which appealed to many people and uh, extrapolated to the whole population. So <clears throat> no matter what ethnic family you grew up in, um, the one thing when I remember uh, that uh, Neil Simon says is uh, two things Jews know, guilt and where to find a Chinese restaurant open on Sunday. <laughs> So the Jews would go to Chinese, and everybody said, hey, want to go for Chinese? Hey, let's go for Italian. Hey, let's go get a pizza. Yeah. <clears throat> let's go to an Irish bar. 
so everybody did it and enjoyed it uh, immensely. And um, in other parts of the country, of course, <clears throat> specifically after the um, uh, Vietnam War, the Southeast Asians went to the West first. Now, we do have in New York many great Thai restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants, Burmese restaurants, uh, certainly Indian restaurants. Um, but that great influx was to the Pacific Northwest, Minnesota. Um, the seafood industry in Houston is controlled by, uh, by the uh, uh, Thais and the Vietnamese. Um, so they have more of that. And uh, Los Angeles has more Mexican restaurants than we do. But Mexican restaurants in New York tended to be um, Cuban-style restaurants, which were stylized after Spanish restaurants. But we just have more of everything. And to go back to Paris being the uh, citadel of haute cuisine, as well as bistro food, uh, haute cuisine was this exquisite, impeccably served, uh, beautiful tables, beautiful tablecloths and linens and chandeliers and, and silverware that, that, that weighed a pound uh, per fork and a great wine list. This was pretty much the purview of Paris as it was established back in the 19th century by a fellow named Auguste Escoffier who wrote the Bible of French cuisine. So that everybody learned to cook or was going to be cooking for a restaurant anywhere uh, had to read that book, had to know how to make a Bernays sauce, had to know how to make Cocovan, had to know how to make a, a creme caramel. All of these things are in that book, and you never deviated at all. Um, and in New York, the French restaurants that existed before World War II were of a very mediocre sort. Uh, they're more like bistros, but they didn't have the ingredients. They didn't have the foie gras. They didn't have fresh um, wild mushrooms. They didn't have so many ingredients, uh, creme fraiche and other things, that the French just take for granted. Um, so the food could not be as good as it was in France. What happened was that in 1939, the World's Fair, New York World's Fair, they brought uh, from all over the world. There was the Italian pavilion and the French pavilion and the Chinese pavilion and so forth. And that was a remarkable, remarkable thing. And a lot of those... Um, the cooks stayed behind. Well, the biggest and best of the restaurants of the World's Fair was called Le Pavillon, the French pavilion. And it had food every bit as good as in Paris because they brought over Paris chefs and they brought over Paris maitre d', a guy named Henri Soulet, who was the manager. So if you went to Le Pavillon, you ate the way you were eating in Paris, except even he couldn't get at that time the ingredients that, that uh, he would love to. <clears throat> he once said, that I have the richest people dine in my restaurant every single night, and I, no matter what I pay, I cannot get them the things that a simple French bourgeois housewife serves to a family every day. So, 1939, 1940, 41, the world explodes into World War II, and Henri Soule picks up his, his knives and forks and ladles and so forth, and much of his staff and uh, brings them into New York, into Manhattan in the, in the West 50s, East 50s. And he opened Le Pavillon there, which set the standard for the next 40 years. Let's say it was 42, 43. Uh, so yeah, for the next 30 to 40 years for what an haute cuisine French restaurant would be. 
all of which began with either le or la. There was la caravelle, there was le quercy, there was le madrigal, there was all, there was, they call them the le and la, they call them the frog pond. One place called la grenouille, which means the frog. And that was a society place, still around today. Um, it was called, uh, and, it was, and there was a frog sitting on a lily pad on the on the menu, and that was strict haute cuisine. That was called the frog pond. So, little by little, as the ingredients got better, not only for French food but for Italian food, where you could really get the real prosciutto from Parma, and you could really get the real Parmigiano. You could get extra virgin olive oil. You could get great wines. You could get pomi porcini. All of those ingredients that make great Italian food were now available. So too, the French were able to get all those things they didn't have before. Uh, the Chinese were. Um, everybody was able to get better ingredients. So all the restaurants got better and therefore more competitive. And where once, and this was true in California as much as it was in New York, the ex-hippies of the 1960s grew up and where they had been cooking counterculture cuisine in their, uh, what do they call them, communes and so forth. Beans, beans, the musical fruit, you know. They would <laughs> make lots of beans and sunflower seeds and, and carrot cake, which they would stuff full of LSD. That was hippie, <laughs> hippie food. But those hippies grew up to be, afterwards, because they had this basis in cooking, they were all college-educated, some of them had advanced degrees, started to cook seriously, and out of that grew California cuisine, and a good deal of it um, in New York, too, where people who had not had shown any interest in cooking were college kids who, just like all of us, spent uh, half a year or went over to, to Europe and uh, ate around and say, wow, why doesn't the Italian food in New York taste like this in Naples and, and Rome? And they found out why, largely because of the ingredients. And other things. So the food across the board in every ethnic cuisine, uh, Swedish food, Norwegian food, German food. Although Ger German food is, is sad <clears throat> for one reason. Because of the two world wars, specifically the Second World War, uh, Germans were at a severe disadvantage. And consequently, um, a lot of the Yorkville German restaurants uh, closed down. So I think there's only one, maybe two. Um, and finding German food outside of the Midwest, and even there, is, uh, is very difficult these days. John, uh, the, the New York City cuisine, or whatever we call it, the, the scene, cuisine scene mm -hmm. in New York City still remains uh, world-class, if you, if you want. It's plenty to find in haute cuisine, but it's also got dozens and dozens, millions of corner restaurants that oh. are family restaurants, little little bars where we would go for lunch that serve food and they were, uh, you know, you could get a great hamburger, but it's but it custom made and, and it just, it's the variety and it's the volume. I would also add the consistency that uh, like a, 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 you get a corned beef pastrami sandwich at a mm -hmm. Jewish deli in any borough. I yes. don't know so much about Staten Island, but <laughs> the rest of them, they would be they would be uniformly delicious, and and yeah. you would know what to expect. Yeah, uh, the pickles the pickles were sour pickles, and they were plentiful, and they were on the table. Uh, Dr. Celery tonic. Yes, Dr. Brown. He knows about 
Dr. Right. Celery Tonic, very, very New York thing, as well as Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink yes. and uh, uh, a few things like that yeah. that are very specific to New York, and nobody could figure out, why do you people drink that stuff? <laughs> you know? But it's part. It's very much part of the culture. Dr. Well, Cel I look forward to... Nope. Um, I look forward to the uh, the day when we are all going back to restaurants locally, wherever we are, yeah. but particularly in New York, uh, where I, I know it's things are going to be a little bit different. But I'm looking forward to your reviews, uh, your new reviews of the restaurants I after the COVID nineteen. I can't wait. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great history lesson. Anytime. And a lot of this history of food. in between, in between, in between these episodes. Uh, people can go to johnmariani.com, uh, where you've been publishing as a virtual gourmet for a long time. Uh, how many years? 22. 22 years. And uh, just going through the archives, there's so many fascinating stories told richly. Uh, mm -hmm. As I like to think of them, you, you basically are creating a recipe for each topic and serving a multi-course meal. So no. for that, well, we thank you. Thank you for having me on. Always. See you again soon. Bye. For more on Celebrating Act Two, visit our webpage, follow us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, and tell your friends. Celebrating Act Two is the user manual for the second half of your life.